Hope everyone is doing well. Hey, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 today. So if you've been with us through our Sermon on the Mount series, you know that we're going through Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7. And so we started in Matthew 5, which is the longest of the three, um, back in June. So hey, we're, we're, moving, we're making progress because today we moved on to chapter 6. But before we jump into that, I want to say hello to everyone who's watching online today. Thank you for joining us. Our heart for our gatherings is that you would encounter the presence of God. So if you're ever in the area, please come and visit us. We'd love to meet you and greet you in person because I feel like there's nothing like the physical gathering. But church, can we welcome them? Just applaud those who are watching online. Glad you're with us today. Glad you're joining us. Uh, today and before we jump into the scripture I just want to uh, just take a detour for a second if you're okay with this and want to highlight I know uh, maybe you weren't here last week but I paused the message series to kind of to talk about proposal three and if you if you know me, if you've been around Radiant for a while, we have not endorsed candidates. We try to kind of, we, we know that those who attend our church are on both sides of the aisle, whether you're on the left or right. But Proposal 3 is, is a, is a re, it's called Reproductive Freedom is what they're calling Prop 3. But it's essentially um, trying to bring, they, they claim Roe v. Wade. Um, they're bringing Roe v. Wade back. So back into making legalizing abortion in Michigan essentially what it is. But it's way more broad than that. But I want to say this. This is not a political thing. This is, this is a, a biblical thing that has political implications. So uh, I'm not, uh, so last week I talked why as followers of Jesus we should think with a biblical view. We should value life in the womb. Now culturally we're saying it's life outside of the womb and it's a woman's choice. But there's a person growing. God sees the uh, sees us in our unformed body. That's what those scriptures say in Psalms 139. God values life right away. And so I want to talk about this. Uh, and, and I would encourage you to listen to that message. We normally don't keep our messages up on Facebook. Go back and listen to it. Uh, it's seven reasons why we should have a biblical view of, of pro-life. We hit some scientific things too, but I want to talk to you as a church. Just take a pastoral moment. Let's read something from scriptures because Exodus 22, and I didn't do this last service, but talks about social responsibility. And it talks about like um, uh, valuing sexuality. It talks about our responsibility to uh, the, the foreigner, you know, how, not, not to oppress foreigners in your land. But it talks, it says this, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I certainly will, will hear their cry. My anger will be aroused. I do believe, uh, especially those who are boarded, they, they are the fatherless. They never get to see their father. And God says that we're not to mistreat them. We have a responsibility to lift our voice in this time. So one, I'm asking everybody to pray over these, over the, that the elections results will, will value protecting life. That that will be the outcome of our elections. I think there's six states right now, or maybe it's eight. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but there, there are six or eight states right now that are putting a, abortion on the ballot. And, but for us, it's a state constitution. 
Amendment, which is radical. So, um, so one, pray, 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 pr- pray about it. And let me just say, number two, vote no. I've never said this. You, you go back and you listen to the last nine years. I've never ever asked the church, vote a certain way. Except with the issue of abortion, I've talked about that publicly because I, I believe these are people that they have constant, like politically, they have constitutional rights. God gives them legal rights. We talked about that last week about if a baby dies in the womb, they have full legal rights. Um, and we talked about last week how the same arguments that are for abortion were the same arguments we were using 100 plus years ago for slavery. And the same way the voice was wrong in the 1850s and 1860s, Christians who, who was like, you know, I would never own a slave. But, you know, the, you know, who am I to judge or, you know, it's, it's their choice. I wouldn't do it. And, you know, if, if we, anyways, I'm reiterating what I said last week. I'm asking you, if you're 18 or older, vote no. If you're not pro-choice or pro-life, you're pro-choice. I'm not even here trying to sway you. Uh, I, I would want you to be pro-life, but I'm not even, I'm not even trying to sway you to do that. It, this is just bad all the way around. A couple of things I just want to highlight, and I've read this several times, uh, the amendment, you're not going to see the full amendment on the ballot. Just know that. You're seeing a, a reworded portion that gives a synopsis of the 300-plus word that is going to essentially alter eight of our 12 articles of our state constitution. It will alter eight of the 12 articles of our state constitution. And I've read it multiple times. So when I see the signs that say, too confusing, too 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 extreme it's like well half it's right it's not confusing it's actually clear to me uh but you know if 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 you don't look at what legal experts are saying it might be confusing but it is too extreme it's radical it's absolutely radical it's just even if you're pro-choice it's radical one you know and kind of the argument is like no it doesn't say that it's not what it does it's not that it's not saying it's what it's not saying it's not putting an age limit. And it, we're putting this in the state constitution. It's not even putting an age limit on, a, on abortion. I love what Pastor Jeff said to me this morning. Is like, how would you feel if we, if we altered our laws where we no longer had to tell a parent that your child under 18 could get a tattoo without your knowledge or consent? And I think most of us say, no, we'd want to know about that. Am I right? Like, no matter how you feel about tattoos, I don't have any. My wife, everyone in my family but me has them. Uh, and they love them. Like, I want to get a sleeve. Great. But uh, I don't want my 14-year-old kid getting it without talking to me first. I'm still going to tell them no. But uh, why do we feel like we should keep that law in place, but when it comes to the reproductive rights of our children, that we feel like, oh, this is a good thing for the state. No, this is, this is radical. A couple of bullet points that I did say. Abortion at any time in the pregnancy for any reason. Uh, Children undergo abortion without a parent's consent. Sterilizing transgender procedures without a parent's consent. Elimination of the state's partial birth abortion. Even people are pro-choice. Most people don't like a partial birth abortion or late-term abortion. Um, Anyone to perform the abortion. There's nothing in there that this has to be someone licensed to do this. Um, In fact, it, it eliminates... It could eliminate health and safety regulations on abortion clinics. Abortion providers are shielded from consequences for injuring or killing women. This is from legal experts. 
not mine, just legal experts. So I'm asking you, if you were a follower of Jesus, vote no. The other thing, so one, pray about it. Two, vote no. It's a pastoral thing. I don't care if it's political or not. We are called to be responsible to voices who, who have no voice. Three. And you know, I'll say this again, because people are like, it's hypocritical. You would talk about this, but and name some other social justice issues. And I'm just like, look, if we don't get this one right first, the other ones don't even matter. If you can't live in the first place, why do we care about the others? I do care about the others. But let's get this one right first, and then we can talk about the others while we're killing 60 million plus people. So this would be radical. And the third thing is this. Use your influence to tell others to vote no. And I don't mean argue over pro-life, pro-choice. You know, I don't mean that. I, I mean, even if you're pro-choice, this is radical. I mean, if you read it, it's, it literally is radical. It's, so the, the, the kind of myth, it's a myth to say it gets us back to Roe v. Wade. No, it's way worse. There were some things in place, even in Roe v. Wade, that protected people who had pro, protected conscious decisions of pro-life people. This, all that's gone. So pray, vote no, and tell other people to vote no and why they should. Educate yourself on, on it. I, I, I'm not here to judge. And, I, you know, last week we ministered. Uh, we, we, we prayed for women who've been impacted by this. It's obvious in a room this size many women and not many there's some in the room that have likely had an abortion here and we talked about that it's not a judgment on you like uh, you know in case you weren't here last week pastor mike did i murder my baby no because you've been lied to by the culture and i know this because i've ministered enough over 20 years to women who've had an abortion and i've never met one who said that was a great decision i know the trauma you're feeling you know we had a young woman on Thursday during our prayer gathering, she, she said she was forced an abortion. This is one thing we're not talking about. What about when a teenager, 16, 17 years old, wants to keep the baby, but mom and dad feel or have wrongfully feel shame that their daughter's brought on the family. They force the abortion. This happens. And I've heard this enough in my office to know this happens. I can think of three in the nine years of my, four in the nine years of my time here at Radiant Church where a woman has came to me, I wanted to keep the baby, but my mom made me do it. There's nothing to protect. Don't talk to me about pro-choice when we're not being right about it. But the woman said she wanted to hear the heartbeat and the clinic would not allow her because they knew if she sees that heartbeat, she'll keep the child. So if that's you, I just want to say I'm sorry that's your experience. We have been praying for you. We've been praying for your healing. And if you do have a child that you don't know if you can take care of, I'm telling you, we will take care of your baby. We will pay for it. We will pay for the birth. I, this is how much. Like, I, I will, I'm not just saying empty words. I mean it. We will, people in our church have come up to me and said, Pastor Mike, if this happens, tell me we'll take that child. So... That's not my message today, but I want to, I'm going to talk about this every week until this because I just want us to be educated. This is radical. Please um, pray about it. Vote no. I've had some pastors say it's too strong for you to say to vote no. No, it's not. I have biblical reasons. And I would be wrong to, to not say my own personal convictions as a pastor on this matter when I, when I, because I view it as people. It is people. It's not just a view. It is people. Everyone in this room, I know you came through the womb. 
You were a person before you came out of that womb. From birth till adulthood, you're growing. Anyway, oh. it's not what I wanted to say, but I want to say it. Am I, are you with me? Okay, all right. And if you're not, it's okay. Thank you. Let's, let's pray. Father, before we jump into the word, I just want to again pray for every mom in the room. Even the father's father who wanted to keep the child, but the mother chose not to. And so, you know, it's, it does impact both men and women, but specifically the women, Father, who carry the trauma of it like no, one, none of, no man could ever understand. So, Father, I pray for her. And I pray you would release her from any shame that the enemy, one, lies to her about why she does it and then p- compounds guilt upon her afterwards. That's the devil. And I pray you would release her from every shame. Heal their hearts, Father. Heal their trauma. I pray you'd plant a picture of their child dancing with Jesus right now. And Lord, and so she could endure her time on earth, and, but yet can't wait for the day she steps into eternity and sees her son or daughter for the first time. So heal their hearts, Father. And Lord, and I just pray for us as a church that we, we would hear your voice on this. You would speak to us. Lord, I'm just reminded when Paul, I believe it was the Philippians, he challenged them and said, if you think otherwise, let the Holy Spirit speak to you. So, Father, I do pray for those in the room. They actually think other than what I'm saying. If you think otherwise. So, Father, I pray for them. They're thinking unbiblically. They're thinking culturally. They're thinking scientifically or governmental reasons. And if they think otherwise, Holy Spirit, convict our hearts to see what God sees. And forgive us for the sin of taking the life of 60 million children who you knew in your womb. So, Father, I just pray for that. I I just minister that in the room today. I pray that as we open up Jesus' words on Sermon on the Mount, it, it, would, it would speak to us today. Challenge us where we need to be challenged, Father. Strengthen us and encourage us in areas we need strength. But our faith, I pray that our faith would be increased today and we would leave differently than we came in. And just in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Be careful. Not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. These are the words of Jesus. Let me just pause and say, you remember this summer when Jesus said that our good deeds were to shine our light before men so they see our good deeds and glorify our Father. So it feels like Jesus is saying something different here. Like what does he mean to not practice righteousness in front of others? But we just read a couple months ago, he says, do this so that God would be glorified. The difference was the context this summer was during our hot, being, someone being hostile to your faith. You know, turn the other cheek when, you, when, when, when someone slaps you or blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Therefore, do your good deeds. He's talking about, so what he's talking about is overcoming being a coward in Matthew chapter 5. Here, He's talking about overcoming being self-centered, that your motive is off. So one, we may be afraid of our Christian faith, and so we need to overcome our cowardness and do good deeds in front of others. Or the other side of it, what we see here today, is we feel good and we want to brag about it. 
That's the context that he is he's speaking to today. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly I tell you that they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you openly. Now, this is every time we read a chunk from Sermon on Mount, it's, all, it's almost always radical to me. Because he says something that just seems unachievable, like don't let your left hand know what your left hand is doing. That's irrational. It's illogical. Like you know what your left and right hand are doing. So what he is telling us with the power of the Holy Spirit, we could. But what, what he's asking us to do, we can't do. Because by nature, we want to be admired. Right? I mean, there's something in us that, that values feeling significant. Like everyone in this room, I mean, because we're wired by God that way. We're wired by God in, to be health, to have healthy confidence, to, to feel a purpose and a calling of God. We, we want to feel significance. We want to feel like our life matters. And Jesus does, he wants that for us. But when we become self-centered instead of God-motivated, God-centered, this is what Jesus is talking about. So he's not talking about healthy confidence, or the need of significance, he's talking about when it tips over into the dangerous realm of where you're looking for affirmation from other people. To be seen by others instead of being seen by God. He's essentially talking about being self-centered. And, and living out our faith in a self-centered way. So what happens when we're self-centered? It's when we want to get the credit or to be noticed for something. We're calling attention to our deeds. It's when we take ourselves too seriously. Well, I know more about the Bible than you. And we want other people to feel that. Or, or, you know, you get around the people and they quote King James so eloquently and their prayers are so, and you just want to choke because of how good they do it. But you feel like they're really giving you their resume, their Christian resume. Like, well, I'm involved in this. And they're very serious about their faith. And then there's, and then there's those who... Uh, pretend to be someone they're not. They don't want to come across foolish. They don't want to come across as not knowing. They don't want to be real. Now, Jesus used this word hypocrite. Hypocrite literally means uh, in ancient times was an actor. So they didn't have movie theaters back then, but they did it. There were theaters all over Rome or Rome, there was all over Rome, and they would, but they would put on masks. It wasn't like today you, they would act out a person's role without a mask. In ancient times, theater had masks, so they put on these masks. They were, they were pretending to be someone they're not, and the insight of what Jesus is saying is we're trying to build our own self-image. It's this mask that we wear. We don't want to feel vulnerable. We don't like it when someone around us gets too authentic or too real. And if they do, we'll get a little sarcastic just to take the edge off the moment. And we, and we want to wear this mask. And that's what sarcasm is. is I gotta, we're building this shell all around us. But we're pretending to be someone we're not when Jesus is saying, hey, take the mask off. Don't be self-centered or self-motivated. Let your motivation 
be back from God and be centered around God. This is what he's talking about. It's like, this is the big thought of what he's telling us today is where does your motivation come from? From self or from God? And it's also maybe fishing for admiration, right? The mask, it's like you put the Facebook posts out there and you go back and look, how many thumbs up did I get? How many likes did I get? Who's commenting on it? And you know you're fishing when the one comment that's not what you wanted, like, just causes you to crash. Like, everything was what you were looking for, the admiration. But the one person who said the one thing, then you're like, oh, why'd they have to say that? And then, but we're fishing for it. So this is what Jesus is saying. Don't build the mask. Don't be a pretender. Don't look for the approval of other people or get the affirmation. That's self-centered. When your motivation should be God should be God-centered. So the motive's hollow. That's what Jesus is saying. It's like, hey, when you're just tooting your own horn, he talked about the trumpets, and he's, you know, it, it's hollow. And it's, they're actually at that point, it's empty acts because you're doing it for you, not for God. So Jesus makes four assumptions in here. There's more than four, but four I want to highlight. Uh, he, he says, be careful not to practice righteousness. But so this word practice is in the Greek, uh, and it literally, literally means like to do certain things be, because you want to. So one uh, thought, one assumption is our faith takes practice. Our righteousness, it's, it's something we do practice. Christian living, when Jesus is talking to religious people in this setting, he's talking to the common man. And he's telling us, like, you should want to do good things. But when you do it, it should be with, with a healthy mode. But Christian living expresses itself through acts of righteousness. But I love that Jesus uses the word practicing, which means, you know, we practice it because we're not really good at it. You know, I, I don't read my Bible because I'm super spiritual. I read God's word because I'm not spiritual, and I want to get there. So I practice reading God's word. I pray not because, you know, I'm awesome and I always feel like it. I pray because I'm unspiritual and then I need God. I need, so we practice it. You know, a lot like we, if you, if you like sports, pick, pick one, football, baseball, whatever, tennis, the newest one's pickleball. I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. It feels like they're borrowing from tennis. Um, but. When you step on a tennis court or the pickleball court for the first time, you're not very good at it. But you don't play because you're good. Now, let me just be real, real honest with you. Like, I, a lot of people golf, love golfing, and I've got a lot of friends who are just into golfing right now. Like, you need to golf. That's your next thing. You're getting older. And like, is golf an old people thing? Because if it is, I'm not ready to say I'm old. <laughs> I am. But, uh, but so I went a couple of times golfing last summer. And I am the worst. So I went, and I, I didn't get a new set of clubs because I knew better than that. So I got me some Goodwill clubs. I had others help me. Like, okay, what do I need? Need that? Okay, let's get that. I did buy a new bag so it looked nice. So I got my junk clubs in my nice-looking bag. And, I, you know, you got to do get excited. You get the new golf balls. You got to get some things new. Don't get the golf balls from Goodwill. Get those from, like, a real sporting goods store. So I get my tees and the ball. And... And we go out, and so we take Jared Anderson. He was here, I don't know if you remember, last August. He came, and he had a day off. I was like, hey, let's go golfing. And so my sons are in the golf. So me and his sons, they all go golfing. And I am the worst because I've never golfed. 
just a handful of times. And, you know, it's, it's like you don't, I don't hit the ball. You know, I just hit the grass and a big chunk of grass goes flying. And I'm just embarrassed. And I do not want to get, I, I just don't know why, how does any, you're chasing a ball. There's nothing really sporty about that. You're playing against yourself. Now, I have seen some competitive on the golf course, but it was embarrassing because people are piling up behind me. Like this, like, and so I'm like, you know, I learned a term, play through. Like, I just let them go through because I don't even know where mine is. And like, it's, I never made par, never, ever made par. But this is what some of us do in our faith. We get frustrated that our swing is not where we want it. And we can't, like we know it's a good thing to get it to the flag. And the flag's the good deed. The flag's the thing. But we swing and it goes off left. You know, I tried it. It didn't work. And, and, and by the way, that was the last time I golfed. Was last year. Like I'm never, and even I was out to dinner with friends last week. Like you got to start golfing. I'm like, bro. His name bro, but it's, uh, I'm not going golf, and I'm terrible at it. Well, that's why you practice. It's what, oh, you'll get good at it if you keep showing up. You get, and this is true for our faith. The more we practice, the better we get. Your faith is livable. You just got to show up to the green. You got to go get you a set of, of, of awful golf clubs and start swinging for the kingdom of God. Get, and then eventually, you'll get better at it. Philippians 2, 12 through 13, Paul writing to the Philippian church says, Therefore, dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence. In other words, I've seen you do this, and you got good at it, and then, then you didn't need me around anymore. Not only in my, my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation. Get better at your golf game. Get better at the swing. Now listen, it doesn't say continue to do this for salvation. It's very clear here. We don't, we're not saved by works. He says from it. From the place of your salvation, do this. You prayed the prayer. You asked Jesus in your heart. You're committed to this. You are saved. You know Jesus. And from that place, work out. Ergonomics is kind of like the, the Greek word here. Like, ergon, like there's a working to it, not for it, but from it. Continue to work out your salvation. You already got it. You already got the clubs. You just got to show up to the green now with fear and trembling. And he, look, he tells us why. For it is God who works in you. God's empowering you to practice your faith. You don't have to be very good at it. You just got to show up to the course. Get in the game. To will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. We practice our faith and Jesus is teaching us, training us, do it this way. Do it this way. Practice your faith this way. Number two. We should do our good deeds quietly. Again, the context was Jesus was saying, hey, don't look at religious people who are just showboating and letting you know all the Bible knowledge they have. And, uh, you know, he's saying, let your good, do your good deeds quietly. He said, don't let the, the left hand know what the right hand is doing. 
Because the moment we advertise our righteousness, the moment we advertise our good deeds, you get the reward. You get the Facebook thumbs up. You get the likes like, hey, proud of you. Um, but you forfeit the reward that God has for you. You'll get, you'll get a reward, but you forfeit the one God wants for you. It's, you know, it talks about announcing it with trumpets. So this would happen in ancient days. Someone would give a large sum of money to a synagogue. Maybe they're building a synagogue or adding to it. And so they would have like musicians. Hey, I'm going to show up. I'm going to give a big donation. I want everyone to know. I want you to blow the trumpets. Toot, your, toot, toot my horn for me. Don't toot your own horn. That's what Jesus is saying. So he talks about the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. It's illogical because our flesh wants to. Right? The left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing, it's, it's an illogical statement. You know, you, you kind of come to that because I'm sure you've read that, or at least I have. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. I, I, how can my left hand not, like, I, they're both right here, and if, you're, if one of them's not working, you know. Jenny was in an accident, so her left hand isn't, like, you know, working right yet. And so you can tell the difference. It would be illogical. So what Jesus is saying is it's going to take the Lord. It's illogical in your own strength to do your deeds quietly. But he's telling us to not look to other people. Do it quietly. Um, we shouldn't want the credit. Let's give credit to God. John 5, 44. So this is, again, the words of Jesus. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another? So Jesus saying, you're looking to the wrong people for your affirmation. Glory. Like, glory of one another. But do not seek the glory that comes from only, the only God. He wants, he wants to say he's proud of you. He wants to reward you. The glory he has for you is so much better than man's glory. And I'm not saying we can't be proud of our achievements. That's not what I'm saying. Be because if you're healthy, it may be you have to share your achievement so that it inspires others. Or, it's, you know, there's appropriate. It's when it's self-centered and it's when that you do it so that you feel good. You're looking for man's affirmation over God's affirmation. That's what Jesus is saying. You don't want to obtain glory from man. You want to obtain God's glory. You don't want man's opinion, what they say about you, because eventually the same people who say they love you are the same people you could be fighting with the next week, and now you have friction with, and you're wondering what's going on. If you put people on a pedestal and you want them to affirm you, you want them to acknowledge you, they're going to let you down. So we practice our acts of righteousness quietly. How do we keep it God-centered? One, keep your acts of giving or your acts of kindness between you and God. Don't advertise your good deeds. Who gets the credit? Who came up with the idea? Who prayed for the healing? You know, someone got the miracle, but you want other people to know you're the one who prayed for it. Uh, who, you know, who made it the, the thing happen or who, whatever. Just 
Don't advertise your good deeds. Don't look for other people to approve your faith or get affirmation of your faith. And honor others above yourself. That's how we could do this quietly. Keep our acts of kindness and our giving between us and God. Don't advertise it. Don't look for others to affirm you. And just honor other people above yourself. Check, check your motive. Am I God-centered in this or is this self-centered? Number three assumption that, we're, that Jesus tells us is giving is an assumption with Jesus. Generosity is an assumption for the followers of Jesus. Now, Jesus in chapter 6, so chapter 5 of Matthew, started out with the Beatitudes, you remember this, which was the attitude that we should have as believers, moves into like how we face hostility and persecution because of our faith. And then the rest of chapter 5 is how our righteousness should surpass the Pharisees. And then he, then he unpacks all of these uh, laws from the Old Testament. You have heard, and he quotes an Old Testament thing, but I say... And then he gives clarity to the Old Testament. And now, he, in chapter 6, he shifts it to being very practical, but he's still speaking to the religious people who want to be seen. And generosity is an assumption for followers of Jesus. So the things that he says, how we practice our acts of righteousness is generosity. How we practice our faith is prayer and, and fasting. It is forgiving other people. This is all from chapter 6. It's having eternal perspective. It's uh, giving God all of our worries. And it's seeking his kingdom first. That's basically Matthew chapter 6 in a nutshell. But giving is an assumption in, in one of these things. We live in a very consumeristic culture. And I actually think most Christians want to give, but there's so much debt in our life we can't. There's no room. There's no wiggle room in our budget to actually be a blessing. But I think we, we want to. But our motive in giving should be for benef the benefit of other, other people. But Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 10 is speaking of the less fortunate, speaking of the of the poor people in ancient times, he says, give generously to them. Give generously. This is the assumption that even God says, and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and everything you put your hand to. Then he just tells us, God just tells us, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, this one is because there's poor people, you have a responsibility. If you're wealthy, if you're blessed, if you're, doing, if you're more fortunate than others, use your blessing to be a blessing. I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in the land. This is interesting. This is God's word. And he tells us that poverty will always be around. And right now there's a movement, especially to Gen Zers or, um, uh, and, and, and some millennials. Like there's this movement, this, and I get it. I think we should want social justice. There's some social responsibility. But I love that God puts it on his people, not on government. And so it, it really does birth out of Marxism, some Darwinism, but this whole idea of like, uh, socialism is this new thing, this buzzword. This was taking place in the 1920s. It's kind of like what led to like World War II. I mean, if you look at history, it doesn't work. But the lie is we can eradicate poverty. 
The lie is we can, we, but the truth is, no, we can all do something. We can't eradicate it. And so we buy into these things, these culture ideas instead of God's way. Think about God's way. He says this. God tells us, and in, in, Israel was in agricultural times, right? So he said, when you plant your crops, leave the edges of the field to the poor people. Don't take the whole crop. So there is truth to that some of our resources should be given to those who, who are in need. And then he says, and let the poor people come and pick it. So leave something for the poor. And here's, and here's my thought. And I don't know how we do this in our culture today. So God says, give to the poor. But then he also says, but they got to come get it. So it's not take and we'll take it to them. It's both of us doing our part. If we're poor and needy, there's something we can do to overcome that. But we see this in God's way. And I don't know how we do that in our culture. But I do know what we're called to do. If we see a need and we can help, we should. It's an assumption for Jesus to do what we can to help another person. And let's stop putting it on the government. There's some, certainly, there's some governmental responsibilities. That we should speak to that. You know, I've already talked about voting. Like, I think that's a part of it, using our vote to help those who are less fortunate. That's one way. But Jesus is talking like in economical terms. Maybe the waitress who's working two jobs, we can give more to her when we're tipping her, whether it was a good or bad experience. I tip, even if I try to tip really well, even if it's a bad experience, because there's something like, there must be something I don't understand. She's had a bad day. I want to sing this. Had a bad day. <laughs> Song. All right. I'm rabbit trailing. Oh. <laughs> you guys sound great, yes. We didn't plan that. They... Listen, this is an assumption. One, that we practice our faith. Two, let's keep our deeds quietly. Let's live generous as the people of God. Last thought is this. Rewards for generosity is inevitable. This is an assumption. I'm not talking about a prosperity gospel. I'm talking, he just says it. Hey, hey if you do this to be seen, that's your reward, you get it. So it's not... If you do it right, even if you do it wrong, you're going to be rewarded. It's just empty and hollow when it comes from man. But let's read this again in Matthew 6. So when you give, so it's not if. It's an assumption. When you do it. Oh, can you put it up? I thought we were, yeah, put it up for me. When you give to the needy, do not announce, don't toot your own horn as the hypocrites do. And it's because all you want to do is build your own self-image. Truly, I tell you, they have re received their reward. It's inevitable. Even if you do it wrong, you get rewarded. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees, sees what's done in secret, will reward you. It's not if. He will. Now, it doesn't mean it's monetary. It doesn't mean, you know, I've heard messages, name your seed, like you can name it. Like, I don't, I don't buy into that theology. But I do believe when we reap kingdom things, we're going to get kingdom results. 
and there and rewards from the Lord is inevitable. He sees it. It's it's not a reward of salvation. You're saved because you believe, you follow Jesus, you know him. That saves you. But out of that, knowing him should compel our hearts to love other people well. It, it should compel our hearts to be socially responsible. It should compel our hearts to love our neighbor as ourselves. It, it should compel our hearts to live generously. And when we do, there's a reward. And it could be on this side of eternity but it could also be when we are in eternity with God. But it is inevitable. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He's a rewarder of those who practice their acts of righteousness secretly so that God sees, so that God gets the glory, but he will reward you. Every time we give and every time we have an, a good deed that we do, we make a choice in that giving or in that good deed. Do I want the admiration for this good deed to come from a man? Or do I want it to come from people? Or God, sorry, same thing. Do you want it to come from people? Or do you want it to come from God? You want it, and I love that Jesus used the word Father. Father. The Father will reward you. God is can sometimes come across as cosmic and far away. But Jesus says, Father will reward you. I'm a dad. I have three boys. I have grandchildren now. I want to be a blessing to them. I want to acknowledge their good deeds. I want to acknowledge how well they are doing. That's what a you want to be. And really, when we're looking for man's approval, it's because we've lacked something in our upbringing, that fatherly role, that motherly role. And we're always looking to fill that hole in our heart. And Jesus says the Father will fill it. That affirmation, the glory, like you want it to come from him because the Father loves you. You are more loved by God than you know. And he doesn't love you in some abstract way. He knows you. He knows your weaknesses, your brokenness, your sin, and he still says, come. You're more loved than you think. The Father will reward you. It's inevitable. So let's stop congratulating ourselves. And let's look, who, who can I empower? Who can I congratulate? Who can I encourage today? Who can I pour into today? It is more blessed to give than it is to receive. That should be our aim. Let's pray. Father, today, Lord, I just pray that you check our hearts. We give you permission today. Check our hearts. Father, forgive us, when, and we've all done it, Lord, where we've looked to man to affirm us. We've looked to man to speak to us. And I pray today, Lord, that you would forgive us for that. I pray that we'd be a, a God-centered, a Father-centered people, that our motivation for all the things we would do would become because we know we're loved first. We're loved by our Father. 
And Father, I pray that as we become free as the people of God and we discover how loved we are, we could do it quietly because we're secure. We have our identity in you. And when we do that, it's easier to love well. It's easier to forgive others. It's easier to pray for our enemies. So that's what we want. So today, I pray, Father, when we go, we would look for opportunity to practice our faith, to practice acts of righteousness. And we'd feel the reward from you. So I pray, reward your people this week, Father. I pray it'd be obvious they do a good thing, not because they have to, not because they must, but because we want to. And we feel the blessing of your presence. We, we feel the reward of doing good. So, Father, we thank you and we love you and we praise you for your presence. And all God's people said together.